You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. We don't take care with the environment. We assume that we're somehow separate from nature, when actually the message is now beginning to get through that what we do to the Earth's environment, we do to ourselves. Former Vice President Al Gore, today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Hi, welcome to the start of Season 5 of Now I've Heard Everything. Now, we've been absent for a while. The entire second half of last year was pretty much a physical ordeal for me. I went through a serious illness, a hospitalization, long period of rehab and physical therapy. Been back home, though, since Christmas, and feeling much stronger. So now, a little late, we're resuming Now I've Heard Everything, which you can hear three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, on your favorite podcast platform. So this is the start of Season 5, and I appreciate your listening. Thank you so much. In the summer of 1992, then-U.S. Senator Al Gore from Tennessee was thrust into a much more visible public spotlight when Democratic presidential nominee Bill Clinton chose Al Gore to be his running mate on the 1992 Democratic presidential ticket. Now, that was also about the time that Al Gore wrote his first book about the environment, a volume called Earth in the Balance. And that's how I came to meet Al Gore in the spring of 1992, just a few weeks before he was nominated for the vice presidency. Now, the day I interviewed him, if he had any indication at that point that he was about to be named Bill Clinton's running mate, he did a really good job of hiding it, I'll say that. So here now from 1992, Senator Al Gore. For a number of years, I've been on a journey, both a personal journey and a journey toward a deeper understanding of this ecological crisis. And I visited the front lines of this crisis in many places throughout the world. But I didn't really think of putting my thoughts down in in book form until a tragic incident occurred, which almost killed my son. My wife and I had taken him to the opening day of baseball season, and as we were leaving the stadium, uh, he pulled away from my hand and ran across the street just as a car came speeding through a gap in the crowd. And... Uh, he he was clinically dead when I got to his side. To make a long story short, he has made a miraculous and full recovery, and we're we've been blessed by that experience. But during the dark days, uh, when we didn't know if we'd lost him or not, after 30 days and 30 nights in his hospital room, I began to think differently about a lot of things in my life and a lot of things that I was working on, including this issue. I began to see the patterns in my own life that contributed to this collision between industrial civilization and the world's environment. And I began putting down ideas that resulted in Earth in the Balance there in the hospital room. I guess one would hope that we wouldn't all have to face a kind of tragedy like you faced to get us motivated, to get us moving, uh, and to, to stop and think about what we're doing. Well, I think it's awfully easy for all of us to uh, be distracted by the seductive routines of modern civilization, turn on the radio or television in the morning and uh, go through uh, a a routine uh, traffic jam uh, on the way to work and don't even take the time to know your neighbors and just uh, 
live in an electronic cocoon uh, and not really notice the, the things that happen in nature or in the community even. I think people feel isolated from communities, from uh, others, certainly from the natural world. And I, I think that's changing, though. I, I think you see it with the tremendous awareness on the part of young people who are insisting that we pay attention to what we're doing to the Earth's environment. Why do you suppose it has just now, I remember when I was in junior high school in the late 60s, that there was the little green flags that had the theta symbol on them for the ecology, and we got all excited. And then it seemed to fade after I went off to college, and then now suddenly it has become an issue that is no longer peripheral, to use one of your phrases. Why have we again now become so aware? Well, I think we are constantly tempted to push it out of our awareness. Uh, dire Straits has a line in one of their songs that goes, uh, denial ain't just a river in Egypt. It's a psychological strategy that we're all uh, vulnerable to using. But I think it has insisted itself upon our awareness because of this string of ecological catastrophes which demand attention. The ozone hole, for example, the uh, potential for serious ozone depletion above the northern hemisphere and above heavily populated areas, record numbers of dead dolphins floating up uh, near Cop Corpus Christi, dead seals floating up on the east coast, uh, the Aral Sea disappearing, the garbage barge uh, as a symbol of our garbage crisis throughout the United States and the industrial world, the population explosion, the list goes on. We're tempted to see these as separate phenomena. The way uh, a, an alcoholic will have a string of drunk driving accidents and attempt to explain each one of them as an isolated misfortune. The road was slippery here, somebody pulled out in front of me there, when actually there's an underlying pattern. And, and I think that the same is true in this case. There is a pattern linking these catastrophes together, and we're beginning to see that pattern now. But it's hard, as you said, that it's, the denial comes in when people look at the garbage barge, or they look at Prince William Sound, or they look at the Aral Sea, and they say, wow, I'm sure glad my little aerosol spray can doesn't cause anything that big. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to bring it down to, to a, a, an everyday level. Yeah, I think it is. And there's also a second barrier. If you break through the denial and realize the enormity of what's going on, there is a second barrier, despair. Uh, many people who take the time to look at this crisis begin to feel it's just overwhelming and there's no way it can be solved. When actually the solutions are well within our grasp. The first step is is understanding it thoroughly, learning about it. Then by using the power of the pocketbook and making intelligent consumer choices and the power of the ballot box and insisting upon accountability by politicians in both parties at all levels, we really can change this uh, problem and solve it. It has to be done on a worldwide basis. But the, the first step in understanding it is realizing that the relationship between human civilization and the earth has been profoundly transformed 
by three changes, mostly in this century. The population explosion, which is adding the entire population of China every 10 years now. The scientific and technological revolution, which has accelerated dramatically in the last half century and has given us thousands of new technologies that magnify our power to have an impact on the Earth's environment. And third, most subtly but most importantly, a change in our way of thinking compared to what our great-grandparents thought. We don't take care with the environment. We're not close to the land. We don't save and reuse things. We assume that we're somehow separate from nature when actually the message is now beginning to get through that what we do to the Earth's environment we do to ourselves. We end up hurting ourselves. And so kids are, and others, are now saying, wait a minute, we've got to think this through again and develop a new, more healthy relationship to the environment. Now, your environmental Marshall Plan addresses each of those points, if I'm not mistaken. I, I, have, I have to confess at the outset, when I read your Marshall Plan, I, I thought, my mother always used to say, well, ma- what made you so smart? <laughs> and not to be too irreverent, but I mean, one is tempted to add, I mean, you're, n- you're not a, 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 a trained biospherologist and, and all this. What made you so smart? <laughs> I started studying this and trying to understand it 25 years ago when I had a professor who in college who was the first person to measure CO2 in the mm. world's atmosphere. And I'm not a scientist, but I've tried hard to understand it, and I've tried to get the people who are experts in these various fields to translate what they're saying into everyday common English so that I can understand it. I was a journalist for seven years before I got into politics, and I drew upon the skills I learned in that profession to try to communicate this issue clearly. Uh, And I believe that the task of saving the Earth's environment must become the central organizing principle for the post-Cold War world. In the last half century, the uh, defeat of communism was the organizing principle for the Western democracies. And We passed the Interstate Highway Bill, uh, for example, as the Defense Interstate Highway Bill. Federal aid to education wasn't passed until the Russians launched Sputnik, and people all across the ideological spectrum began to worry about where the next generation of rocket scientists was going to come from. Well, now that communism has been defeated, American ideas are ascendant in the world, economic freedom, self-government, both of which are prerequisites for saving the Earth's environment. But the new organizing principle has to be a determined worldwide effort to, to change this unhealthy relationship and provide for sustainable development and allow economic progress without environmental destruction and to set strategic goals with Japanese and European capital, with U.S. leadership selecting goals such as create the conditions that lead to stabilized population patterns accelerate the development of new technologies that foster economic progress without environmental destruction. Uh, Business, incidentally, is helping, beginning to help lead the way as they're discovering tremendous profits and new jobs that can be created in uh, engaging this task and and, and undertaking uh, this challenge. After this short break, Al Gore explains why he thinks voters have a lot more influence than they realize they have. Now 
now back to my 1992 interview with Al Gore. Well, the, uh, the people who put together the Shopping for a Better World uh, book every year have discovered the power of consumers when it comes to influencing those corporations that, yes, uh, maybe the Greenway is a little bit better. Yeah, and also companies are realizing that there's a huge worldwide market. Actually, Japan and Germany are now saying this openly. They say the biggest new market in the history of world business is in making and selling the products and processes that allow the world to to progress without destroying the environment. Just to take a quick example, look at what's happening in Mexico City today. They're shutting down factories, not because of the economy, but because they're choking to death on the pollution. And they're desperately looking for new machinery and new processes to reopen those facilities and the recreate those jobs without adding to the poisonous burden of pollution. And virtually every city in the developing world is no more than a half step behind Mexico City in this march toward ecological tragedy. That's a huge new market. The second reason the Japanese are putting much tougher environmental standards on their businesses than the ones embodied in U.S. law is they've made an interesting discovery. If you can eliminate pollution, you eliminate economic inefficiency. Inefficiency is sometimes difficult to see. If you're hunting a bear and you don't see the bear, you look for the tracks or you have the dogs follow the scent. If you're looking for inefficiency in a business, it's sometimes invisible. Look for the pollution. It'll lead you right to the inefficiency. And they're, they're driving toward higher levels of efficiency and quality by targeting the pollution and the environmental impact. They're improving profits and productivity while dramatically improving uh, environmental standards. We can uh, lag behind uh, and watch them take over this new market, or we can make a decision to create millions of new jobs in, in selling into this market. But does that mean, I think, I think most people, when you come right down to it, are worried, does that mean I'm going to have to do without my air conditioner? Does that mean I'm going to have to do without my, those aerosol spray cans? Does that mean I won't have the uh, pesticides to use around the house to get rid of these bugs on my tomato plants? Uh, when you come right down to the very basic concerns, that's what people are worried about, isn't it? In almost every case, when you push the creative search for substitutes, you find them, and frequently they are cheaper and better. You take the example of spray cans, for example. That was actually the first product uh, targeted for the elimination of these chlorofluorocarbons uh, that destroy the ozone layer. Oh, the industry wailed and moaned and said this will cost millions of jobs and it'll have a terrible impact. Well, the deadline was set, and the day the deadline came, the new products showed up on the shelves. And nobody knew the difference. They were just as cheap, just as good, in some cases better, uh, and there was, there was no difference. All of the other uses for these uh, CFCs, or almost all of the other uses, uh, have yielded to new approaches. Uh, Northern Telecom, uh, based in Tennessee, so I'm familiar with it, uh, set a goal of being the first communications company to get rid of chlorofluorocarbons. They just beat the goal by the, the deadline by nine years. But the exciting part of the story is the new process saves them four times as much money every year 
as the entire cost of the transition and the new products coming off this line are of significantly higher quality. Hmm. So, and the rest of the world is, is not uh, very different from us. Back to Mexico City for a moment, the retailers there are finding they cannot sell spray cans that are not labeled ozone-friendly, uh, CFC-free, because the people there won't, won't buy them. Now, you know, we have this image of people in the developing countries as just not caring about the global environment. <laughs> they do. The public opinion polling worldwide shows this is an escalating concern, especially among young people. And the world is moving in this direction. The real question is whether the United States will lead the world or whether we will miss this opportunity and allow Japan and Europe to steal a march on us. Only got a moment or so left, but I wanted to ask you, how do we as voters this election year persuade or force George Bush, Bill Clinton, Ross Perot to address the environmental issue? How do we get answers from them? What are you going to do? I often get asked, what can one individual do? There are three things. Number one, learn about it so thoroughly that the cynics can't knock you off balance. And be prepared, because they'll try. There's a ferocious resistance to this. People who say, oh, we don't have any problem. It's sort of like the, uh, the scientists who work for tobacco companies who sometimes look you straight in the eye and say, there's not enough evidence to link smoking with lung cancer. Well, there is. We may not know exactly how it causes lung cancer in, in, in every detail, but we know it does. And this is the same way. Learn the facts. Arm yourself with knowledge. Knowledge is power. And in any conversation you have with a politician or anybody else on this, the more you know about it, the better equipped you'll be to, to, to cause the change you want to see. Secondly, pay attention to your consumer choices. These new compact fluorescent light bulbs, for example, yeah, they cost more, but after two years, they more than pay back the extra upfront cost, and they last for 10 times as long and cause one-tenth the amount of pollution. Why not buy them? There are plenty of other similar examples of the power of the, of the purse. The third thing is in using the power of the ballot box, don't just register to vote and vote. By all means, do that. But organize others who agree with your opinion to communicate to candidates for every office in both parties that your votes will depend upon their answers and their positions on, this, on th these issues. When enough people do those three things, we will have the change we're seeking. Some people who learn about this issue and begin to really care about it fall victim to a feeling of despair that convinces them the problem's so big we really can't solve it. As a friend of mine uh, said recently when I was going through this global Marshall Plan, he said, I agree with everything you say, Al, but... I know enough about people and politics to tell you that's just not likely. And I asked him, what if I'd asked you, is it like, two and a half years ago, is it likely that in the next few months every government in Eastern Europe will collapse, all the statues of Lenin will be torn down, 
and people would gather in the city square and sing, We Shall Overcome. He said, well, I, I guess I wouldn't have said that was likely. And I could say the same thing here today. How many of us would have predicted one year ago that in March of 1992, the overwhelming majority of white South Africans would vote to abolish apartheid and share power with the majority in, in South Africa and march toward uh, democracy? We would have all said, most of us at least, that's unlikely. The point is, we have a capacity as human beings for change that far exceeds our usual willingness to dream of what is possible. If enough people want this change to take place, it will take place. And young people are leading the way toward the change in thinking, which I believe is going to make this political change inevitable. Al Gore served for eight years as vice president under Bill Clinton, then running for president on his own in 2000. Of course, that year, he narrowly lost the election to George W. Bush. Since then, however, Al Gore has cemented his reputation as a leading advocate of environmental causes. And you can find easy Amazon links to Al Gore's books at our website, heardeverything.com. Oh, and that's also where you'll hear my 1988 interview with another member of the Gore family who had a special agenda of her own, Tipper Gore, whose mission was to help our kids live a PG life in an X-rated society. I don't want to take away their favorite songs. I advocate information in the marketplace so people can make individual choices based on their own value system and their own taste. That enhances freedom. And don't miss my interview with Al Gore's predecessor as vice president. Dan Quayle. By and large, it came back to that, that caricature that was formed early on in a highly partisan, a very unorganized way. They wanted it to stick. I've had my breaks uh, and I've had my knocks. And of course, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can hear us on all major podcast platforms. Thank you so much for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, the Swedish-born actress, singer, and dancer who became a major star while she was still a teenager and has never stopped being a major star, my 1994 interview with Anne Margaret. We saw each other for a year. It was very intense, very strong, very real. And then uh, for 14 years, we were uh, friends. I knew him very well, as he did me. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Now back to my 1992 interview with Al Gore. Well, the, uh, the people who put together the Shopping for a Better World uh, book every year have discovered the power of consumers when it comes to influencing those corporations that, yes, uh, maybe the Greenway is a little bit better. Yeah, and also companies are realizing that there's a huge worldwide market. Actually, Japan and Germany are now saying this openly. They say the biggest new market in the history of world business is in making and selling the products and processes that allow the world to, to progress without destroying the environment. Just to take a quick example, look at what's happening in Mexico City today. They're shutting down factories, not because of the economy, but because they're choking to death on the pollution. And they're desperately looking for new machinery and new processes to reopen those facilities and the, recreate those jobs without adding to the poisonous burden of pollution. 
And virtually every city in the developing world is no more than a half step behind Mexico City in this march toward ecological tragedy. That's a huge new market. The second reason the Japanese are putting much tougher environmental standards on their businesses than the ones embodied in U.S. law is they've made an interesting discovery. If you can eliminate pollution, you eliminate economic inefficiency. Inefficiency is sometimes difficult to see. If you're hunting a bear and you don't see the bear, you look for the tracks or you have the dogs follow the scent. If you're looking for inefficiency in a business, it's sometimes invisible. Look for the pollution. It'll lead you right to the inefficiency. And they're, they're driving toward higher levels of efficiency and quality by targeting the pollution and the environmental impact. They're improving profits and productivity while dramatically improving uh, environmental standards. We can uh, lag behind uh, and watch them take over this new market, or we can make a decision to create millions of new jobs in, in selling into this market. But does that mean, I think, I think most people, when you come right down to it, are worried, does that mean I'm going to have to do without my air conditioner? Does that mean I don't have to do without my, those aerosol spray cans? Does that mean I won't have the uh, pesticides to use around the house to get rid of these bugs on my tomato plants? Uh, when you come right down to the very basic concerns, that's what people are worried about, isn't it? In almost every case, when you push the creative search for substitutes, you find them, and frequently they are cheaper and better. You take the example of spray cans, for example. That was actually the first product uh, targeted for the elimination of these chlorofluorocarbons uh, that destroy the ozone layer. Oh, the industry wailed and moaned and said this will cost millions of jobs and it'll have a terrible impact. Well, the deadline was set, and the day the deadline came, the new products showed up on the shelves. And nobody knew the difference. They were just as cheap, just as good, in some cases better, uh, and there was, there was no difference. All of the other uses for these uh, CFCs, or almost all of the other uses, uh, have yielded to new approaches. Uh, Northern Telecom, uh, based in Tennessee, so I'm familiar with it, uh, set a goal of being the first communications company to get rid of chlorofluorocarbons. They just beat the goal by the, the deadline by nine years. But the exciting part of the story is the new process saves them four times as much money every year as the entire cost of the transition. And the new products coming off this line are of significantly higher quality. Hmm. So, And the rest of the world is, is not... Uh, very different from us. Back to Mexico City for a moment, the retailers there are finding they cannot sell spray cans that are not labeled ozone-friendly, uh, CFC-free, because the people there won't, won't buy them. Now, you know, we have this image of people in the developing countries as just not caring about the global environment. <laughs> they do. The public opinion polling worldwide shows this is an escalating concern, especially among young people, and the world is moving in this direction. The real question is whether the United States will lead the world or whether we will miss this opportunity and allow Japan and Europe to steal a march on us. 
only got a moment or so left, but I wanted to ask you, how do we as voters this election year persuade or force George Bush, Bill Clinton, Ross Perot to address the environmental issue? How do we get answers from them? What are you going to do? I often get asked, what can one individual do? There are three things. Number one, learn about it so thoroughly that the cynics can't knock you off balance. And be prepared, because they'll try. There's a ferocious resistance to this. People who say, oh, we don't have any problem. It's sort of like the, uh, the scientists who work for tobacco companies who sometimes look you straight in the eye and say, there's not enough evidence to link smoking with lung cancer. Well, there is. We may not know exactly how it causes lung cancer in, in, in every detail, but we know it does. And this is the same way. Learn the facts. Arm yourself with knowledge. Knowledge is power. And in any conversation you have with a politician or anybody else on this, the more you know about it, the better equipped you'll be to, to, to cause the change you want to see. Secondly, pay attention to your consumer choices. These new compact fluorescent light bulbs, for example, yeah, they cost more, but after two years, they more than pay back the extra upfront cost, and they last for 10 times as long and cause one-tenth the amount of pollution. Why not buy them? There are plenty of other similar examples of the power of the, of the purse. The third thing is in using the power of the ballot box, don't just register to vote and vote. By all means, do that. But organize others who agree with your opinion to communicate to candidates for every office in both parties that your votes will depend upon their answers and their positions on, this, on th these issues. When enough people do those three things, we will have the change we're seeking. Some people who learn about this issue and begin to really care about it fall victim to a feeling of despair that convinces them the problem's so big we really can't solve it. As a friend of mine uh, said recently when I was going through this global Marshall Plan, he said, I agree with everything you say, Al. but..." I know enough about people and politics to tell you that's just not likely. And I asked him, what if I'd asked you, is it like, two and a half years ago, is it likely that in the next few months every government in Eastern Europe will collapse, all the statues of Lenin will be torn down, and people will gather in the city square and sing, we shall overcome? He said, well, I, I guess I wouldn't have said that was likely. And I could say the same thing here today. How many of us would have predicted one year ago that in March of 1992, the overwhelming majority of white South Africans would vote to abolish apartheid and share power with the majority in, in South Africa and march toward uh, democracy? We would have all said, most of us at least, that's unlikely. The point is, we have a capacity as human beings for change that far exceeds our usual willingness to dream of what is possible. If enough people want this change to take place, it will take place. And young people are leading the way toward the change in thinking, which I believe is going to make this political change inevitable.
Al Gore served for eight years as vice president under Bill Clinton, then running for president on his own in 2000. Of course, that year, he narrowly lost the election to George W. Bush. Since then, however, Al Gore has cemented his reputation as a leading advocate of environmental causes. And you can find easy Amazon links to Al Gore's books at our website, heardeverything.com. Oh, and that's also where you'll hear my 1988 interview with another member of the Gore family who had a special agenda of her own, Tipper Gore, whose mission was to help our kids live a PG life in an X-rated society. I don't want to take away their favorite songs. I advocate information in the marketplace so people can make individual choices based on their own value system and their own taste. That enhances freedom. And don't miss my interview with Al Gore's predecessor as vice president. Dan Quayle. By and large, it came back to that that caricature that was formed early on in a highly partisan, a very unorganized way. They wanted it to stick. I've had my breaks uh, and I've had my knocks. And of course, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can hear us on all major podcast platforms. Thank you so much for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, the Swedish-born actress, singer, and dancer who became a major star while she was still a teenager and has never stopped being a major star, my 1994 interview with Anne Margaret. We saw each other for a year. It was very intense, very strong, very real. And then uh, for 14 years, we were uh, friends. I knew him very well, as he did me. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson.